Welcome again to Everyday Holiness, a Faith in Deep podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service. And we're pleased to have you today with us again, or for the first time, on this podcast where we talk to members of the Notre Dame family about their lives, vocations, important decisions along the way, and their own coming to know their call to holiness. So I'm really pleased to welcome today Sister Anne Estelle, a Schoenstatt sister of Mary, who is a professor here in the theology department. So, Sister Anne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> really glad to have you with us. Could you tell us something about your childhood and some important moments during that time? Mm-hmm. I grew up on a, in a little town, Jefferson, Wisconsin, at the edge of town where we had a, a homestead and a farm, a little farm. My grandparents lived right next door to me. It was a, I remember it as a kind of a paradise, <laughs> a child's paradise. I have five brothers and three sisters, and so we were the great playmates of one another, mm-hmm. um, played in the woods, went on walks in the field with my grandfather. My father worked in a factory in town, but it was, I, I remember it as being, you know, just a beautiful, a beautiful growing up. Um, and faith-filled. Mm-hmm. So my parents prayed with us. We had meal prayers. My grandparents took me to Mass every Saturday morning. We could count on it that they would be praying the rosary at 6 o'clock every night. My mother made a May altar to the Blessed Mother in our dining room. We always had the Advent wreath. Everything was very integrated, faith, family, a certain atmosphere that was educative, and the power of good example. Yeah, it sounds very lovely. I grew up in western Kansas, close to farm life, not on a farm, but I always admired the the discipline, the connection with nature and our God and Creator, and and living on the farm. I think there's something special about that existence that helps cultivate that that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. I would wish it for everyone, you know, that they have a chance at least to, you know, spend some some weeks of the summer in on a farm. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure this rhythm of prayer of with your grandparents, with your parents, helped uh, maybe give some hints of uh, a religious vocation that was to come later. When did you first discover that call that you thought maybe God is calling me towards the religious life? Mm-hmm. I know for sure that at the time of my first Holy Communion, I was aware of it. And uh, maybe the thought of, of becoming a sister was we, we had Franciscan sisters who were a real presence in our parish, in our, they re- taught in our school. I had some relatives, through, uh, second cousins, <laughs> who were sisters and used to come to the farm, actually, to, to visit and have some home vacation. So we kind of grew up with sisters. We understood <laughs> um, just what special people they were and that it was a real possibility as a way of life. My, my mother had also considered it before marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was a part of it. And then you know, the, the death of my brother... Um, he was. He died at age two. I was age five. Right. Wow. And that I remember that shortly before my first Holy Communion, I had been hospitalized, and there had also been a hemorrhage. And so I think somehow those two, 
that recent illness, together with the memory of the not-so-far-distant death of my brother, had kind of placed me you know, at that borderline region, kind of between this world and the next, yeah, right? Yeah, very early in life. Uh, and yeah. uh, I, I was looking back, I, I think that that was probably probably the most important thing that ever happened to me was mm. the death of my brother. And, yeah, so that wanting to to give my life back to God and to make heaven closer to those of us on in this life yeah. uh, was a kind of a part of my, um, certainly a part of my experience at First Holy Communion. Yeah, it's amazing how God can use the circumstances of our lives, even very tragic ones, to help us along in those decisions. How did your family help each other during that time of the loss of your brother? I remember very vividly that the morning when my parents came back from the hospital after my brother had died to tell us mm. that Polly was with the angels, right? Mm. And, yeah. and my mother, it was the first time I'd seen my mother cry, and we kind of gathered together a group hug, right? You know, mm. and, and, and the funeral was, you know, as funerals often are for children, um, it was, you know, more... You know, this uh, as sh- there was a certain certainty, right? You know that that child had gone to heaven, mm-hmm. and so we kind of lived with the awareness that Paul had had been called home early to heaven um, to intercede for us. Right. Um, and I do believe, you know, that when I think about my brothers and sisters and how how faithful, you know, they have been to the faith uh, in a large family, mm-hmm. um, that that. Our little brother, our little angel, right? <laughs> it was pretty powerful out there yeah. <laughs> at the throne of God <laughs> for us. Yeah, he was still still busy, and, and his life certainly had purpose in, the, in eternal life and, and through your lives. So thank you for sharing that. Now, this aspect of there were Franciscan sisters, there were other religious sisters, and yet you eventually honed in on these, the Schoenstatt sisters of Mary. What was it about that particular order that ended up attracting you? Mm-hmm. Well, and it was a process, right? It's, it's, I uh, came to clarity that I was called to be a sister the summer after my undergraduate undergraduate studies. And so I just assumed I would become a Franciscan because yeah. <laughs> th- that was a community I knew. And I put myself in contact with them. I was living at a home run by Mercy Sisters. I was teaching at a school run by Sisters of Notre Dame. <laughs> <laughs> All the <laughs> options. <laughs> a very interesting time. <laughs> but I also encountered Schoenstatt. The one of our sisters actually was in residence in the same dormitory where I was just for two weeks. She was uh, taking a course in musical composition, and I there were other members of the Shunset movement, not sisters, laity, um, who were also living there, and so that was a, a contact I had. I, I met. Sister Gisela Benda, who was a professor of German at Marquette University, a Shunset sister. And um, I just remember somehow feeling that, you know, th- this is where I belonged. Mm. It, it, there, the, there was a freshness about the way the gospel call was being communicated. There was the reputation of the founder who, you know, was regarded as like a living saint. Mm-hmm. Um, he had actually only died a few years before I encountered Chinstadt. 
and then I'll, I'll never forget my first visit, you know, to the International Shunset Center in Waukesha, where uh, it was October, it was kind of the annual remembrance of the founding day, and the place was just filled with families, you know, mm. young and old, children running around. <laughs> and um, and I, so, of course, coming from a large family Felt and, like home, and yeah. feeling, you know, here, here I could continue to be, you know, a member of a family. Uh-huh. Um, that, was, that was very important. Yeah, that familiarity, I think, uh, helps when there's a lot of options out there in front of us at those moments of discernment. For those who may not be aware, could you explain what the Schoenstatt movement is and, and how it came to be? Schoenstatt was founded in 1914 on October 18th <laughs> um, at the outbreak of World War One. Our founder was 26 years old, a young spiritual director at a minor seminary. And when the war broke out and these young boys were being drafted in yeah. their teens, right, he was, of course, very concerned about their, their spiritual well-being under such terrible conditions. And he read an article, a newspaper article, about uh, the Our Lady of Pompeii, the major pilgrimage place in, in Italy, and how Bartolo Longo, who's now been beatified, mm-hmm. had had just sort of offered the church, you know, to Our Lady, um, you know, to take possession of it and and to be active there, and and the miracle started to happen in this church. So our founder got the idea. Well, maybe we could just offer Our Lady, <laughs> <laughs> offer Our Lady the little chapel where we're having our meetings, uh-huh. <laughs> and um, and but but we have to convince her that we really want her to come, and so he instilled in the boys a desire to strive very seriously for sanctity um, in everyday life, their homework, you know, their 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 play with one another on the, the playground, right? Um, their, how they behaved in, in the dormitories, you know, their own private prayer exercises, and then their study of themselves, you know, what particular temperamental um, weaknesses did they have, and, and to, to make their striving for holiness very particular, mm-hmm. and, and also in accord with their ideals. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so that's how Shunset first came about, but it spread through the ranks of the soldiers. After the war, it, it really became a, a much broader-based uh, movement in Germany. Um, it became a force that the Gestapo took note of okay. uh, at the rise of Hitler. And so, again, it spread through the ranks of prisoners in Dachau. It became an international movement after World War II. Uh, our founder was a prisoner along uh, with others uh, in the concentration camp at Dachau, mm. a political prisoner, prisoner because of his opposition to Hitler. So it's really quite a dramatic story. Our sisters were founded in 1926 to take care of the many pilgrims who were coming to this little chapel uh-huh. that, that Our Lady had taken possession of. Yeah. <laughs> and then they were sent out uh, already in the 30s. I mean, we were only founded in 1926. They were sent out to Australia, South Africa, South America. I only came to the U.S. in, 19, in the 19, late 1940s. Okay. Wow, that is a dramatic story, and I like that idea of sanctity in everyday life. That's a pretty good, <laughs> pretty good match for what we're doing here on the podcast. I know that religious formation can often take a number of years. Were there any really important, important moments for you during those years where you received further confirmation of your vocation and what you felt you were being called to do? Mm-hmm. 
Well, for me, there was always this awareness of, of a double vocation, right? So I felt very called to just scholarship and teaching, but also this great call to be a sister. And I decided, well, the, the, the state of life question is the most fundamental. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would, I would f- pursue that vocation first and then, uh, and then make it a matter of discernment on the part of my superiors, you know, if I would go on to study in graduate school. Yeah. But I must say that, you know, kind of inside of myself, until those two vocations were conf- both confirmed, there was, I don't know, a, I, I wasn't completely at peace. Mm-hmm. But... But that did come about. Um, I had taught in a grade school for a while, and then my superiors had sent me there. Um, I think I learned to be a better teacher as a result. (laughs) 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 But I really wasn't cut out to be a grade school teacher. Yeah. (laughs) A special calling. Yeah. (laughs) And and so, you know, the first, uh, the ability to study uh, for the master's at Marquette, and then... Uh, and then the decision that I would go on for the doctorate kind of gave me uh, great confidence, right? You know, that I was being sent to do that by mm-hmm. my religious superiors. And, and it happened to be that my final consecration after eight years of formation, mm-hmm. right, coincided with the beginning of my writing of my doctoral dissertation, okay. right? And, and so these two things came together very beautifully. Mm-hmm. I was writing my dissertation on the Song of Songs in the Middle Ages, and, and so kind of all that sort of uh, bridal and uh, nuptial imagery in the text I was studying matched, you know, my sort of bridal experience in making my final uh, consecration to our Lord, uh, to our Blessed Mother. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really interesting point because sometimes we really get focused on the big question of of the primary vocation. Am I called to marriage? Am I called to religious life or priesthood, the single life, whatever the case may be? And yet, what we come to realize is even when we answer that primary question, there's still a question, well, what, what do I do with this now? What do I do with the rest of my life? in this state of life. And so discernment really is an ongoing thing, and it sounds like you discovered that during your years of formation as you settled on that primary vocation and then took some time to figure out what was next uh, within that vocation. Yes, and to do it communally, you know, together with my sisters, right? Um, I think that's also a very important thing, you know, that those who who know us, right, who live with us, who understand something about our character and personality, they also can have an insight, you know, mm-hmm. a, a gift of the Holy Spirit, you know, to um, advise, but also to confirm, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. Um, something that is inside a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that God's, some of God's confirmation can come through those who know us and love us best. Now, this uh, time in graduate school, what did you end up studying? How did that lead you into teaching in your later career? Mm-hmm. From little on, <laughs> I, I had wanted to be a teacher. I remember, um, you know, sitting on the basement steps, you know, playing teacher with my brothers and sisters. And I had always wanted to um, study literature. I wrote poetry. I devoured books uh, growing up. And, and so it was clear to me from beginning on that I was going to study English literature. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, my master's degree and my doctorate were both 
through English departments at Marquette and the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Okay. But in the doctoral studies, I had focused on medieval literature, which is really saturated with uh, theological themes sure. and um, uh, concepts and biblical reception. And so kind of a combination of my natural interests and, and the objective content mm-hmm. of, of medieval English literature allowed me to kind of sort of seamlessly combine um, a kind of a theological interest with a literary interest. And so I was pursuing that just kind of through my research, my teaching, and eventually uh, there was a tipping point (laughs) where I sort of ended up on the theology side of it, you know. um, And and so that happened um, after I'd been at at Purdue University teaching for 18 years Mm. that uh, I, I finally wrote a book <laughs> called uh, "Eating Beauty: um, The Spiritual Arts and the, Euchar- the Eucharist and the Spiritual Arts in the Middle Ages." And I wrote the whole book. <laughs> and and then someone said to me, "And this is very strange. There's no English literature in this book." <laughs> <laughs> it's all theology. Yeah. <laughs> and I hadn't even noticed it. Right? It was so. I was like, "Wow, what had happened to me?" <laughs> <laughs> That's funny how. Uh, it can become so ingrained in, in who we are uh, that it just uh, is a natural progression. Did that then lead to your coming to Notre Dame at that time? Probably indirectly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd gotten to know some of the faculty member in members in the Department of Theology through their visits to Purdue because we had a Notre Dame theologian in residence okay. there, and also through the Lumen Christi Institute at the University of Chicago that was very well supported also uh, by Notre Dame faculty. Um, so I'd had you know different exchanges, people with L- Larry Cunningham, John Cavadini, uh, Cyril O'Regan um, had gotten to know them. And they had gotten to know me, right? I also submitted a manuscript to the University of Notre Dame Press on lay sanctity, Hmm. right? Which and that manuscript was read by Larry Cunningham, right, and Keith Egan. (laughs) So I sort of entered the thoughts, right, of of faculty members here, and at, at one point they just contacted me and asked me if I would ever consider coming here to Notre Dame in theology. It was a, a a big consideration. It took me, I think, two or three years until yeah. kind of from that first contact to actually arriving here. Um, it was difficult for me to leave Purdue mm-hmm. and and really make a kind of a disciplinary shift mm-hmm. in, in, in an official way, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, from from theolo- English to theology, but I had always I kind of had the dream of being at Notre Dame. Okay. Um, from the 1980s, I had um, interviewed here um, as a candidate for a position in the English department, uh-huh. and so I had encountered Notre Dame and all of its all of its beauty, <laughs> <laughs> and had a sense of its great mission, you know, mm-hmm. as a Catholic institution, and I wanted to contribute to that if I could. Mm-hmm. Since you are a sister of Mary. Did the Marian aspect of Our Lady's University was that part of the draw, and did that enri- has that enriched your time here, being so close to Mary in, in both your religious life and your professional life? Oh yes, uh, very much so. I think the certainly the thoughts of the sorrowful mother, you know, of here have helped me to understand better the significance of Father Kentinick's death on the feast of Our Lady of Sorrows. Okay. 
And in his great devotion to the Immaculata, right? And I'm constantly reminded of it when I mm-hmm. see Our Lady on the on the dome, right, in mm-hmm. all of her glory. Um, and then the deep interconnection between the the Immaculate Conception and Mary's cooperation with Jesus at the foot of the cross. Um, that sort of come home to me also through teaching, because uh, shortly after I arrived here, I invented a course on the Immaculate Conception, uh-huh. which I teach once a year, usually in the spring. And it's been a great privilege to take Notre Dame students to the grotto, you know, um, as part of that course to um, discover the Lourdes legacy yeah. <laughs> uh, that is so important, actually, to Notre Dame. Yeah, so especially through that course, um, I've been able to dig deeper, you know, into into the Marian character of Notre Dame and to connect it to my own spirituality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that would be the case. Now, you started in English and then over time have kind of made this switch to theology, but I find that in the biblical texts, there's a rich array of literature and different types of passages, and and there's a lot to dive into from a literary standpoint. What have been some of your favorite passages or books of the Bible that have really both been interesting to you as an academic, but also personally sustaining to you as a religious sister? Mm-hmm. That's a great question, Dan. <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> well, um, when I transitioned to theology, I thought, okay, I should kind of build on my strength, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so as a, as a literary scholar, I look to see, okay, which are the texts of the Bible that are, you know, have a, a kind of a pronounced uh, literary character, right? And so, so when I teach freshmen, you know, mm-hmm. the first year students mm-hmm. here at Notre Dame, um, we place a major emphasis on the book of Psalms, yeah. you know, the biblical poetry. And its power to express emotion, you know, as well as prophecy, right? And so that the, the, that's been a great joy to teach uh, Notre Dame students um, the Psalms. They hand copy them. They read all 150 of them out loud in a <laughs> psalmathon. <laughs> so that's been great. And then the the Song of Songs, of course, the topic of my dissertation, I've. And if that's been a major theme um, in a cor- graduate course I teach on the Cistercians, right? Mm-hmm. St. Bernard was a great commentator on the Song of Songs. It, the Song of Songs imagery is just, it saturates the Cistercian texts of the Middle Ages. And, and then the other, the other uh, uh, biblical book, you know, that I come back to again and again is um, the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I, and I like that, I, I think, partly because I've been involved with Jewish-Christian dialogue over right. the years, and that that gospel you know, was composed for Jewish-Christians, sure. for sure, uh, and so it has kind of, it, it's a wonderful sort of linchpin, you know, kind of between the Old and the New Testaments. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, thank you for sharing those those thoughts with us. I am interested in this, you mentioned this manuscript on lay sanctity, and again, that's a a connection here for the podcast, because what we've tried to do is get a variety of guests, you know, from different ages, stages, vocations in life, including the laity, and really, you you think about Vatican II and the universal call to holiness, that we're all called to holiness in some way. What were some of your 
thoughts and research as you as you looked into this idea of lay sanctity, even as a religious sister? Well, Shunzet was founded to be really a lay movement. Okay. You know, so it was one of the early ecclesial movements that really placed emphasis on the universal call to holiness, mm-hmm. right? And so we had, I helped to organize a conference that was held at our retreat center um, in Waukesha, Wisconsin, on the theme of lay sanctity. And as a result, I was going to also edit some of the papers from that conference. And so the, the collection to which you refer on uh, lay sanctity, the search for models, uh, we kind of grew out of that conference. Okay. And well, I discovered, um, I remember spending one summer going through Butler's Lives of the Saints, looking for <laughs> lay saints. <laughs> and it was actually pretty tough, right? Yeah, yeah. Not uh, too, very, not too very, very interesting. I mean, there were crowned kings and queens, sure. you know. There were a number of uh, early Christian matrons like mm-hmm. St. Monica, mm-hmm. you know, who were acknowledged. The married people, and we connect marriage especially with the lay state, they were kind of an odd set, you know. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, they were not—they were not canonized as a couple, and they often had settled on some kind of continent marriage, or they had sort of quote unquote become a saint after their spouse died and they went to a monastery or something. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, this is actually very disappointing, right? You know, <laughs> if you're looking for you know models, you know, yeah. for for contemporary uh, striving, you know, mm-hmm. toward holiness. Yeah, so the the book is called the subtitle "The Search for Models," right? Okay. Uh, but I also, as as an introduction to that volume, did a a, a study, right? You no, know, kind of the, of the this universal call for holiness to holiness, and a kind of how, especially the lay uh, lay vocation, you know, e- even to call it a vocation has only relatively late and not officially been recognized as a vocation, yeah, right? Yeah. So it was a fascinating study for me. And actually, just this fall, I got a call from um, a scholar, and uh, he he's doing work on uh, lay sanctity, and he had discovered the book. And he said, well, this is like the best introduction <laughs> <laughs> that I've found. Yeah. And yeah, so that, that book was, was important, but it was also very much in the spirit of, of Schoenstatt. Yeah, I think that's helpful to those of us who are in the lay state and and I would agree with that you know you, uh, search sometimes for well, what are the models that we look up to if we're married or, or in this lay state so thank you for that work there we, we touched a bit on your time at Notre Dame but have there been any other highlights that you'd like to share of your time teaching here you've been here for a number of years any anything that comes to mind as a particularly favorite or wonderful memory mm-hmm. Well, I belong to a very wonderful department, mm-hmm. um, very uh, caring colleagues. Uh, shortly after I arrived here, I was uh, diagnosed with cancer. Mm. And I, it touched me deeply the way that my colleagues, who really didn't know me very well, I sure. was new, right, uh, reached out to me with their concern. And, and they even organized a, a a, a prayer service, right? And I've seen this again and again since I've been here, how the members of my department um, gather to pray um, when when someone is, is ill, um, certainly, you know, when someone dies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a real community that is, is not just an intellectual community, not just a, a, a workforce, you know, but also 
a, a community of prayer mm-hmm. and with a sense of mission. So I, I feel I feel very very privileged uh, to be a, a part of the work of that department and on behalf of this great university. I think in some ways the Grotto is the soul of Notre Dame, but I think also the Department of Theology <laughs> <laughs> and and the work in in connection with campus ministry too. You know, are, are yeah. really the soul of this place. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I certainly experienced that as a graduate student in the department and appreciated just some of the amazing people over there. Now, as you've lived here, have you lived with other members of your community, or how have you stayed connected to your order in this context of teaching here at Notre Dame? Mm -hmm. Well, as I mentioned, our founder had been a a prisoner in Dachau, right? And Mm -hmm. so, kind of early on, (laughs) he, he, he thought of our spirituality and our, our community, we call the new community, has to be able to maintain deep spiritual bonds even during times of separation, sure. right? And he, and from early on, he also envisioned that our members would sometimes live alone, right, as well as in community and, and have the inner freedom to move in and out, mm-hmm. right? So... I, during the time of my studies, I lived in community. Um, I, as I told you, I'd come from a big family. Uh, I had really never wanted to live alone. <laughs> um, but when I got a job at Purdue, I came alone, right? Yeah. And and I, uh, after a, a period of adjustment, <laughs> I, I realized that that also gave me a certain freedom for apostolic engagement. Sure. And and it's been pretty much the same way here at Notre Dame. I've been alone most of the time. There was a period of three years when Sister Danielle Peters um, lived with me during the time she had a postdoc mm-hmm. at the McGrath Institute for Church Life, and that was a, a great joy, you know, to have Sister Danielle uh, here. But at present, I'm, I'm living alone, but I keep close ties with my house superior and my co-sisters in, in Madison, Wisconsin. Okay. Yeah, well, and we've all experienced in the past year and a half uh, some sense of isolation and, you know, being creative, and <laughs> whether it's through Zoom or the phone calls, just staying connected to people to be yeah. intentional about that is yeah. really important. So we touched on your brother's death as a, a particular moment of suffering, a very important moment in your life, but cancer can also be a really liminal period of, of figuring out uh, where God is and, and what does this mean. How did your faith endure during an illness like that? Well, I don't know. It, it seems as if my life has gotten very simple. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you just sort of practice, you know, of saying yes to God, you know, every day. And um, and so this was kind of a new one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, and it was a great opportunity, you know, for me to give my life back to God more deeply. And it's kind of a strange thing because the 12 months before my diagnosis, I, I seemed to have somehow sensed something mm. because I remember I made a, a kind of an extended retreat in a month by month, kind of remembering people in my life and and trying to kind of purify my heart, you know, that it would be absolutely pure yeah. <laughs> and that I could consecrate my heart to the to the mother of God um, the Immaculate Heart and um, and I was able to kind of make that act during retreat in June and then it was like within the next year that I received my diagnosis mm. um, and 
And then, of course, you know, the sin of like, oh, okay, well, what is God's will, right? You know, mm-hmm. I think sometimes with serious illness uh, strikes people, you wonder, okay, how, how strong should I fight for life? You know, how, how willing should I be to let go, yeah. right? Yeah. It's, it's kind of a dialectic, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and so in the end, God decides, right? And you have to be pliable enough to will either to go on living or to return your life mm-hmm, uh, to mm-hmm. God. And and that kind of came to the fore for me just uh, in a decision about whether ha- to have a certain kind of uh, chemo treatment mm. after my surgery. And it was really through the discernment of, of my doctor <laughs> mm-hmm. that I um, said my yes to that. Okay. Um, I, I, did, I really didn't think it was necessary, you know, okay. um, f- for my part. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, just kind of um, to, you know, let it be done. Let yeah. it be done to yeah. me. Yeah. Well, I think it's a different perspective when you live from an eternal viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And we know that our hope ultimately is not in this life. And obviously experiencing death in your family at a young age, realizing that, no, no tomorrow is promised to us. Those, those I think, really change one's perspective. Now, you mentioned your doctor. A lot of times, I think there's a very special relationship between patients and medical personnel, doctors, nurses, others, during these really trying times. Were there some particular moments that come to mind that you thought, you know, God, this is really a sacred moment in this space as you interacted with some of the me- medical personnel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I remember um, Nancy Cavadini accompanied me to, to this particular visit with a doctor, mm-hmm. right? And I sat there in the in the office uh, with him, and he showed me this chart with uh, uh, statistics, right, uh, about kind of like what would be the chances of, of, of a recurrence of ca- uh, the cancer. And and I was thinking, oh, I never make decisions based on statistics, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and so I was, I had dug in my heels. I wasn't going to do it. Okay. But then he got really quiet. My doctor did. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. he bowed his head, and I realized, oh, he's praying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and after a, a time of silence, he looked up and said to me, sister. How would you feel if 50% of your patients died? Wow. And I, he awakened so much empathy in me mm-hmm. for him mm-hmm. <laughs> that I was sort of somehow seeing the whole thing differently from his perspective. And it was because of that uh, intervention on his part that I changed my mind yeah. and agreed to the treatment. Yeah, I think there's a real nobility in the practice of medicine, and for, for most of us, these medical crises, crises may come along once or twice in a lifetime, or maybe through a loved one going through it, but it's not our every, everyday existence. And yet, you know, people in the medical field, especially you think about those in emergency rooms or oncology, uh, you know, this is just part of their everyday life, yes. and a cross to bear, really, when you get to know people and then have to often let go of them if they pass away. So I've always admired, you know, the medical profession for what they, the burdens that they shoulder. And I'm, I, it sounds like you got a glimpse of that in your, in your own experience with cancer. Yes, yes. 
you know, it is a personal relationship and one that involves a great deal of vulnerability on both sides, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, so the, the doctor's name is Dr. Ansari, mm-hmm. and I want to mention it uh, gratefully. And uh, he's also been very good to Notre Dame. Yeah. Thank you. I'd like to, you mentioned the Gospel of Matthew and this interest in Jewish and Christian dialogue, and that's obviously something that has been explored throughout Christianity in a particular way at Vatican II and, and still guides us in that. What have been some of the most important lessons that you have learned in participating in that Jewish and Christian dialogue? Well, it was a real revelation to me to uh, discover how the church's theology of Judaism had changed. Right? Yeah. I was uh, involved with the Holoca- annual Holocaust Remembrance Conference at Purdue, and in the year 2000, a major year for Christianity, sure. right? Yeah. Uh, I was asked to be part of a panel, right, you know, to discuss uh, Jewish-Christian relations and especially Nostra Aetate, the Vatican document, uh, the, the church's relation to other religions. Mm-hmm. And it moved me deeply. And, of course, around the same, same time, Pope John Paul was going, you know, to the Wailing Wall. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I... And given that our founder had also been a prisoner in Dachau, you know, a prisoner with Jewish people, it inspired, you know, kind of my own desire to study that period. Um, uh, the works of Edith Stein, Simone Weil uh, have been very important to me. And, and another moment I would highlight is um, I, g- I got to know Rabbi Michael Signer, who mm-hmm. is also a member of the faculty here at Notre Dame, through a scriptural reasoning pro- project that was uh, hosted at the Center of Theological Inquiry at Princeton. So for over a period of three years, we would fly out, I think twice a year. It was Jewish, Christian, and Muslim. We sort of poured over the scriptures together yeah. and found you know, the beauty right, of the Abrahamic religions in, in, in their holy books, mm-hmm. right? And in them, kind of the kind of the seeds, right? Of of the seeds of of revelation, of of, of a deeper understanding of each other's traditions, and friendship. You know, mm-hmm. you got to actually to know that know other people, right? You know, representing these faith uh, traditions who became friends. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It was very transformative at, at that level. Yeah, I've always appreciated that about Notre Dame that. It is a Catholic institution, but not everyone who comes here is Catholic. But it's a it's a place of, of great dialogue and of friendship, despite whatever differences that exist, that we can come to uh, together and, and learn from one another. It's uh, been a great gift to, certainly to my life, and I think to a lot of people who come here. Your life of faith has is always a journey, and it's uh, progressed over time through life's experiences. As you think about your life right now, what's most important to you about your faith and your practice of it? I think, you know, because I'm I'm getting older now, right, (laughs) Uh, and I think simpler, the the thing that comes home to me is that faith is victorious, right? Hmm. Faith is our, our victory, you know, over the world, over death, over Satan. God doesn't change. God is always there. He's our anchor. And so 
to have faith is to is to participate in this victory, <laughs> mm. and, and and so there's something very unshakable about it, right? It gives us strength. I realize that more and more, kind of when especially when you read the headlines nowadays and you think, oh, there's so much uncertainty, right? You mm-hmm. know, but but God foresaw everything, and His providence guides everything, and so we can discover God's love. In whatever comes our way, mm-hmm. and that's constant. It doesn't change, right? So I, I hope that I've gotten a little better, you know, a little quicker, right, <laughs> at discovering God's love in whatever whatever happens. Mm-hmm. Well, it it is notable because you talk about World War One and World War Two. Uh, some of those tremendous moments that shaped so much of history, both during those events and then the aftermath. And for us, living through the COVID-19 pandemic, this has been a real moment in history Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. will not be forgotten for a long time. You know, God willing, we're, we're, we're emerging from the pandemic and, you know, greater vaccines and medicines available to make it uh, something more manageable than it has been. What is your sense of the aftermath of this time and uh, some of the lessons mm-hmm. that we'll take with us having lived through this really as a global community? Mm-hmm. And turns that we talk about a practical faith in divine providence, right? And, and that faith not only helps us to kind of look for, to discover God's wish and will in circumstances, but also to ask the question, well, what for? You know, mm. what is the purpose, you know, in God's plan of something? It's not so much the, que- the question of what caused something in, you know, in the blame game, which right. is often, you know, the, where we go, right? Sure. But instead to think, what is God asking of me through this, right? And so in the in the, in the pandemic, for instance, in terms that we have what we call home shrines, right? You know, and so the many, many Catholic families that belong to Schoenstatt, often erect a home shrine. So they have their own prayer corner with their family symbols, maybe have a, a family ideal and title. And so, you know, in those days when you're only able to um, participate in Holy Mass through the internet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, our homes as, as, a, as a, a domestic church, right. you know, have, have become, um, I think, God's finger is pointing to in that direction, you know, the importance of the, the home shrine, the domestic church, as a place where the faith is lived in a very fundamental way. Mm-hmm. Um, Father Peyton had that uh, motto, you know, the family that prays together stays together, right, right? you know, and, <laughs> and you know, and so that, that but the, the family that prays together does so in the home, right, yes. you know, so the home, and this is also a time of homelessness, you know, increasing homelessness, mm-hmm. and so there's, God also speaks through that, right, mm-hmm. you know, to say that, that the people need a home, they need community, and and so all the more so do we need to foster that mm-hmm. you know making use of whatever means we have because otherwise the human being because we are social beings if unless unless we have an experience of community we sort of uh, we break down yeah uh-huh. and it can have very serious and violent you know consequences mm-hmm. that that break down um, mental health, you know, even our students here in Notre Dame were suffering from that, sure. right? 
So, you know, to, to think about the positive atmospheres that we can build up in our homes in small communities that will mm-hmm. be a refuge, right, um, and a means of strength, kind of, you know, a spiritual oasis, right, mm-hmm. from which we can go out um, into our everyday life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has given us all a glimpse of some of the sufferings that maybe some of our fellow brothers and sisters go through every day, whether it's uh, unable to go to Mass because of illness or uh, of a disability of some kind or uh, living without one's family or without a home. And I often, in my prayer, ask God, what are you What are you trying to teach us here through this? You're permitting this to happen, so what might we be learning from it? We certainly learn from a lot of situations and people. We've, we've touched on holiness, but I'd like to ask you specifically, who have been some of your models of holiness who you've learned from during your life? Well, then the, 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 our saints, right? You know, that the saints of our church, especially the Blessed Mother with her attitude of, of, of being a kind of helpmate to, to Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. In the whole work of salvation, her constant yes to God. So I've really grown very close, you know, to Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, and then more, I guess, idiosyncratically, maybe, <laughs> um, I, I have a great devotion to St. Joan of Arc, right, okay. you know, who's a young saint who made use of for the time she had, right? right? All of our lives are short, yes. right? And and she had a strong sense of mission. We all need a sense of mission. Mm-hmm. Um, so St. Joan is, is great for me. And then St. Bernadette, I've gotten to know and, and love very dearly. Um, also one of these uh, young saints, you know, so I, it's kind of interesting how, how you can, I think in, in our childhood before God, you know, we all become like little children, right? Yes. The fascination of the young saints, you know, is, is with us uh, throughout our lives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, no matter how old we might be. <laughs> so inside we're still young, and uh, that's a, a very beautiful thing. Of course, St. Joseph, uh, St. Michael. <laughs> but then also, I think, you know, we live in a communion of saints. And so when I think about the Blessed Mother, I think about our sisters, right? The very holy sisters with whom I've lived mm-hmm. and whom I've seen a reflection of Mary. Uh, yeah, I think of, you know, St. Joseph and, and Father Kantonick. And I think, okay, well, I, I was prepared to see some their holiness because of my own father, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it was... Um, it was like a little saint for me. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother and my brothers and sisters, uh, especially I, I've grown very close to my sisters, um, they've all had their own uh, experiences of um, conversion. And uh, one of them is a third order Carmelite. My sister Faith told me one day, she said, you know, I realized that it's very important that I tell myself I want to become a saint. Mm-hmm. Right? to make that a conscious goal. And so when you have friends like this, right, <laughs> family members like this, um, you help one another, you know, mm-hmm. in that striving for holiness. And it gives you eyes, our faith gives us eyes too to see that striving, that goodness, you know, in each other. And at whatever point we're at, mm-hmm. right? So sometimes you, you just wonder um, and marvel, you know, at a small step in the right direction that you see, you know, in someone who's who's really in a, in a position of, of great vulnerability or, and it, it gives you courage. And think if they can make that little step, and I've been given so much, 
you know, shouldn't I be more generous, mm. more daring, right, um, for for the Lord? Mm-hmm. I, I think about even the Easter Vigil and seeing people through the RCIA process yes. coming into the church, and it really gives me a lift to say, if they're here doing that at this point in their life, it's time for me to recommit myself to those baptismal promises. So I certainly uh, certainly understand that. For you in your life and vocation, what have been some of the most effective practices and techniques that you have found that help you strive towards a holy life? I would say you know, that this, uh, there's the, the morning offering and the evening offering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're very important, right? Yeah. So if at the beginning of the day you you can foresee what you can foresee, right? <laughs> and um, but just to to offer very uh, consciously everything to God, and I do it to Mary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, give it into her hands for the good of others, right? I sanctify myself for others, right? And so so that I you know you give your day, and then at the end of the day, right? <laughs> you need a to, you need a little bit of time to look back over the day. It's kind of an examination of conscience, but it's also a, a kind of a, a, an exercise in memory, mm-hmm. right? You remember the day, and you give thanks for the things that brought you joy, and you ponder, you know, the, the, the causes of sadness or the moments of failing, and, and they also give that to God, right? Um, so at the end of the day, God makes use also of our of our of everything, right? So if we can give him our um, our disappointments, our weakness, our sin, right? You know, in in that humble spirit, God can make something good out of that. But it's very important that at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, you return everything. It's it's a preparation for death. Too, sure, sure. Right. I would so I think that would be like one of the most important things. And and then of course, in a holy mass, you know, live from mass to mass, right? <laughs> <laughs> and again, that's kind of an the offertory too is connected to the morning offering and the evening offering because at the offertory of mass, we also give everything to be consecrated, to be transformed. It's, it's all very organic, you know, mm-hmm. to think of, of Holy Mass in connection, you know, with those acts of morning and evening surrender, mm-hmm. right? That's a really helpful perspective. Uh, you've given us so much to think about, Sister Anne. I really appreciate your time in, in coming on the podcast and helping us explore some of these themes and know of our gratitude for that, but also gratitude for all that you've given to Our Ladies University, continue to give to the theology department and our students here. It's been really nice to talk with you today. And, and a privilege to talk with you, Dan, and, 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 and to know that maybe some of the people will be actually listening to our conversation. <laughs> Absolutely, they will. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith in D podcast. We invite you to rate and share and just spread the good word about some of the stories that are happening on this podcast, as well as to subscribe to our daily gospel reflection email at faith.nd.edu slash sign up. There you'll receive future notifications of the podcast, as well as a daily reflection each day on the day's gospel. Until next time, you'll be in our prayers. Mm-hmm.